And so any results that we get from assessments that are non-standardized will be presented in the form of concrete feedback uh, that describes true attainment. The students don't know why they're learning. The teachers don't know why they're teaching. And if, if we were able to answer that question, the more that curiosity will be retained. I'd also like to see uh, more learning or more teaching by the community. So if there's a, you know, a, a subject that the students are learning about that I'm not a specialist in, well, maybe I could bring in a practitioner. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Carl Milsom, the founder of the Rebel Teacher Network, which is a group of podcasters, about seven or eight right now, of educators and of writers who are trying to disrupt the education field, thinking about curricular innovation, thinking about ways to rethink the curriculum, to rethink what learning is, to rethink the role of the teacher. And Carl has tremendously rich and insightful thoughts and contributions in this conversation about exactly what we need to do to make learning, in fact, more meaningful and to connect it closer to the students, but also prepare them for what lies ahead. He talks about the roles of university. He talks about the roles of how we can take the why of learning and actually embed it within the units, the lessons, the curriculum, the learning experiences in general. And this is something that I've been very interested in lately, is this idea of the why of learning. Why is it that we are learning certain material? If anyone would like to come on the show uh, or send me an email or write to me or whatever, or just have a conversation, I'm very much interested in how we embed the why we are learning something, why we are teaching something into uh, the curriculum and into every learning experience. So I'd love to hear from you uh, and we can move the conversation forward. But in the meantime, I will leave space to my conversation with Carl Melsom. Please leave a rating if you like this show and I look forward to uh, hearing your feedback soon. So I'm here with Carl Milsom, uh, who is the founder of the Rebel uh, Teacher Network, uh, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about. I'd love to hear about your thoughts on education, about what you're trying to accomplish, and just in general, uh, what you're doing to change uh, education or at least people's minds. So my first question that I ask is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure. Um, been looking forward to it for uh, for a while now. Um, I am Carl Milsom, um, and I think we have connected through the Rebel Teacher Network, uh, which you just mentioned, um, a community of teachers that I have uh, slowly established online, uh, mostly through LinkedIn um, and then through various other social media, which is a place for teachers to connect and uh, to share ideas about ways for changing education and trying to go, perhaps go against the mainstream, um, trying to look for ways of doing things differently in the best interests of the students, which I feel has not necessarily always been the case with the mainstream or the traditional education system. And that can be, that can leave teachers in a difficult spot where sometimes we, know what we want to do for our students and what's best for our students, but it might be at odds with what the system requires of us or what our job description uh, mandates. And so that's really where the idea of the Rebel Teacher Network uh, came from, um, is trying to look for ways that we can support teachers in pushing back against some of the 
uh, perhaps less conducive uh, aspects of the education system or the institutions that they work in. And one of the questions that I ask every guest in order to have a shared understanding or try to build an understanding is, what does learning mean to you? And then we'll talk about all the other parts, all the other richness that, that you brought up, but, but what does learning mean to you? Yeah, that's sort of, uh, <laughs> it's a very big question to ask in so few words. Um, it's something that I obviously, I spend a lot of time thinking about and my thinking perhaps has developed over time on this. Um, the most basic answer to the question, I think, is that it involves um, some change in uh, understanding or ability. Um, learning, uh, there are many, I think, levels of analysis that we can work on. I think whenever I think about education and learning, um, I can't, I can't remove it from the, the neurological level, I think. So there has to be some neurological change for there to be learning. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be conscious, doesn't have to be something that we're aware of, but anytime we are changing uh, neural pathways, um, then I think that that's really fundamentally what learning is. And I think in order for learning to be a value, it should also manifest in changes to our behavior in some way or another, um, and preferably uh, positive changes. So I'm, I'm gonna pick you up on uh, the idea of disrupting the, the, the mainstream system and how it doesn't serve for kids. But one thing that you said that I find particularly interesting is that it happens necessarily on a, on a subconscious level or a level that we're not uh, aware of learning that is. And it, and it brings me to a point or a question that, that I've been thinking about a lot or been talking to people about a lot is, why are we trying to assess for learning if it happens on levels that even the learner does not necessarily, isn't aware of? Now, we could talk about the bigger system, but how do you think that we can justify assessing learning if that's the case? Yeah, well, I think we can uh, assess for learning. Um, there's a, there's, um, I think the, the way that we assess is perhaps the question. I think that some uh, form of assessment is necessary. Otherwise, we don't know what we're doing and we don't know what we're achieving. So we need to know as teachers and as learners and as a system uh, on the whole, we do need to know that learning is taking place, that progress is being made, that our students are achieving goals and targets. And anything that to my mind, anything that we do to monitor that, um, we can call assessment. So anything, any, any measures that we are taking to see that progress has been made, something has been learned, targets have been achieved, students have progressed towards competence or ability in some way, uh, is assessment. And so on, so on on some level or in some form, I think that that's necessary. Um, what I think is not necessary, and in fact, in my opinion, undesirable, is the sort of standardized, um, fact-based uh, testing that we see so, so widespread throughout systems around the world, this focus on testing of kind of declarative knowledge. And so that idea of learning happening um, subconsciously or perhaps sort of un without the students, um, you know, awareness perhaps. Uh, again, I don't think learning has to be that. Some learning is obvious, some learning is conscious, um, but a lot of what we learn is not. 
Um, but again, it manifests, I think, in behaviors. So we can observe behaviors and therefore see what people have learned. And of course, by observing behaviors, we can also see if people have learned uh, things that we would rather they don't learn, right? We can see if people are learning, picking up bad habits and, and learning sort of, you know, undesirable um, behaviors. We can monitor for that as well. Um, and often that might be picked up unconsciously. The students might not be aware that they're developing these bad habits. So we can monitor for progress in all sorts of directions. But I think that what we do at the moment across most of the education systems um, is only really test for the very conscious declarative knowledge that students are learning in very conscious um, memory-based ways, which has its value, but it's only a small part of what I think education should be about. And when we focus our assessment there, when we focus our whole testing apparatus at that one part of learning, the effect that that then has is that the system follows suit. And so the system and many of the teachers and the curricula around the world um, focus their teaching and learning efforts in that same direction. So we're, we're, we're only teaching what we are testing and that means we're cutting out or missing out a large portion of what's valuable about learning. A lot of people are going to say, uh, or at least I've heard a lot, but if we don't standardize the assessment, then we can't really know how much progress someone is making because it's not fair, it's too subjective. Um, thinking that there is no subjectivity in, in standardized tests, which is, which is uh, an, odd, an odd comment to make. And if we don't know, if we don't standardize the assessment, then we don't know where people are in the world, how well our school is doing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, this is something I, I wanna keep talking about. I've been talking about it a bit more and, and writing a little bit. I wanna keep talking about it and I still need to make my message on this, I think a little bit more concrete. So the more opportunities I get to talk about it, the better. Um, but standardization is, I think the easy route there. It's the easy way out. Um, I'm not going to tend it's not easy, right? The, the reason it's so widespread is because it, it, it's an easy way of taking those checks. But again, in my, as I sort of described already, I think it's taking checks of something that we shouldn't be so focused on. Um, if we want to measure the other aspects of learning, then the standardization um, has less value. It doesn't really fit. And you're right that when we, when, when we suggest moving away from standardization, people think that that means moving away from any sense of um, objectivity. Uh, I think that, in my opinion, when we look at standardized results, they're very uninformative. And so they are standardized, they are systematized, and so there's a sense of... Um, comparison between a person on this side of the country and a person on that side of the country, we can look at their scores, see different scores and know different levels of attainment. That's the idea. I don't believe that that's true. I think that if we see two numbers, it tells us very little about what's actually been attained. Um, and in fact, if you had two students who score, if we use percentage as a, as a benchmark, and we say two students who scored 65% on the same standardized test, well, we don't know what that means. I don't know that they scored the same 65%. You know, it could be that the first student got all of the first 35% wrong and the, the last 65 correct, whereas the other student 
had the complete opposite experience. And so they had the same score, but they have two very, very different outcomes um, of, of actual learning. When we move away from standardization, the goal I have is to actually focus more on objective, clear outcomes of learning. And so any results that we get from assessments that are non-standardized will be presented in the form of concrete feedback uh, that describes true attainment. So that when we see the outcomes of a student uh, from non-standardized assessment, what we will see is a clear picture, a very concrete description of what the student has achieved, what the student can do, his or her strengths, and areas that still need to be improved in. By reading a report like that of two different students, I can see exactly where each student is, what their strengths are, where each would be better served, where each should focus their efforts for further learning, what careers each might be better suited to, and so on. I can know much, much more about that student when we move away from the scores and the grading that, is, that the system has currently relied so heavily on. And as a parent, I read report cards barely. I mean, at the end of the day, I look for a score. I look for the deficiencies. Why aren't you doing well? And, and, and that goes against everything I believe in because I'm, you know, I believe in strength-based feedback. But at the end of the day, I, I just scan through. Don't even read the standards. Just look for the, for the points. It's natural. The, the comments are the part that interests me. And they're so rare. Three, four, five sentences, half of which are what they've done, which, which doesn't uh, necessarily inform me. The question that's asked is, but what happens when it's time to apply for university, assuming that's the pathway, and each university admissions officer has six, seven minutes to go through each file, they're not going to take the time to read. So how do we get over that hurdle? Yeah. Um, I mean, that is a hurdle to be got over. It's a hurdle that I would like to see removed. Um, you know, and this is really, this requires sort of an, an overhaul of the system. And so the, this is really what the Rebel Teacher Network is about, is trying to approach these problems at two or, or more than two levels, perhaps, but at least two levels. The level of the teacher in the classroom, you know, what we can do as teachers to better serve our students, and then also hoping to work at the level of the system with, you know, the leaders and the decision makers and the people in charge um, to try and make the bigger changes at the system level that will then cascade down to everybody. Um, as a teacher, trying to do what's right for the student um, might mean doing two things. It might mean providing this value that we're talking about here, the things that I've just described, and also giving them the score that's going to essentially be their ticket to whatever's the next stage. Um, that is the compromise. Uh, the reality when we do that, as you've just described, um, and even you know, those of us who are very conscious and aware of this as still fall into the same traps, that when there's a number, that's where you look. Um, if you're going to, or if you want to emphasize feedback and comments and, and constructive responses to students, um, then what you cannot do really is give them a sheet that has feedback on it and a score at the bottom. Because everybody looks at the score and they're either happy or disappointed and they ignore the rest of it. Uh, so if those scores are necessary, then the best compromise, I think, is to let the scores trail behind the feedback. 
and allow the feedback also to be not just a one-time result, but um, allow feedback to be progressive as the students progress through a project that they're working on or through a unit that they're uh, working towards. Um, we can give regular feedback that focuses on what they've done and what they still need to do. Um, and that feedback will all be oriented towards helping them achieve the goals that they have or that we have or hopefully that we have together. And then later when all is said and done um, and they're happy with what they've achieved and the work that they've done and the, what they've learned and the progress they've made, then if we really have to, we can put a number on it. I'd rather we don't, but as you say, we, when, if we don't do that, even though it's better for the learning, which should be our primary goal, our main consideration, um, unfortunately the, the, the scores are what people are looking for and if we don't give that, then we're doing our students a disservice, which is ironic because we're giving them a better learning opportunity. We're helping them learn more, research has shown this, um, by not giving the score, but by not giving the score, we're cutting them out of a system that they need to be a part of. So it's sort of a, an interim compromise, I think, is allowing those scores to follow the real value, which is the learning and the feedback. One of the things that we're talking about is learning and assessment of learning or for learning or whatever it might be. The question is, what are they learning? What's your view on this idea of curriculum about, about having the kids learn, I, I'm using inverted commas here, something that they might not be interested in? Is that, can there really be learning there? There's gonna be some kind of tangential learning or, or, or learning through the experience, but how do we construct these experiences in ways that actually motivate the kids because they get interested in them? Yeah, really good question. Um, and I think there are different attempts to answer this. I'm not sure I have the definitive answer, but there's a few thoughts that I have on it. Um, uh, first of all, I do think that the curriculum probably needs an overhaul. And when I say the curriculum, obviously you and I are in different countries now and people watching this will be in more, you know, many more different countries. Um, our audience will be from around the world. So the curriculum it means different things to different people listening. And yet, um, I think there's a lot of shared commonalities that when we talk about the curriculum, people from all around the world will probably recognize what we're talking about, apart from a few outlier countries perhaps. Um, so I do think the curriculum, whatever that might be, probably does need an overhaul in terms of what it focuses on. Um, the main areas of focus in the curriculum now are very well, very closely tied to the testing. And so where testing is standardized and focused on fact-based declarative knowledge, uh, the curriculum is also. Again, not to say that those things should be erased, but a focus should be balanced, I think. And some of the things that you just suggested, um, there is incidental learning that happens, right? Students will learn from the experience of learning. Um, first and foremost, I would like all of that to not be an accident. A lot of what we learn at school, a lot of the value that comes out of, of schooling, I think is an accident. You know, you, not just unconscious, it's fine if it's unconscious, but it's, the teacher is also not conscious of it. And I think that that's a problem. I think that these things should be built into the system, into the curriculum more. So things like autonomy and confidence, social awareness, um, critical thinking, all of the things that we want our students to learn. And if we're lucky, they are getting 
by accident, uh, these should be central focuses of, the, of the, the teaching process and of the curriculum, I think. One of the things that uh, has really irked me is the fact that the little guys, grade one, grade two, grade three, and they're excited and they're curious and they're energetic and they're happy. I get to the later grades, eight, nine, 10, and I, I get there's puberty and adolescence, but kids in general, by that time, they're, they're waiting for the answer. They're, they're trying to get the right answer. What kills this curiosity? I think something that happens, and there's, there's two parts to this, because I want to answer the, the new question as well. Um, but there, there is, I think, something that happens, something that changes in the focus. For the younger children, um, most of what they're learning relates to their environment right because they're learning kind of fundamentals about how to interact with the world and that's really valuable for them and it's really interesting for them because it's immediately applied right so uh if we think about like maths as a subject well when you're first beginning to learn maths so you're a young learner and you're an elementary maths learner you're learning things like um counting and adding which you can then use to make sure you haven't lost a pencil, right? So these are, when you're learning at that age, everything is very concrete. Everything is very uh, directly applied to your environment, to your world, to, to the things that you need to do in your life. And when learning is applied, it's far more valuable and it's far more interesting. Um, as we graduate to the higher levels of school, a lot of the learning becomes more abstract and a lot of the application falls away. Uh, so I don't think that, yes, obviously there are changes happening in the students as they grow up, uh, but I don't think that that's the operative factor. I think that it's the focus of the, the teaching and the learning that changes and that's where the interest uh, starts to fade because when you're in sort of secondary school or high school, um, that's where you start to hear students ask, why are we learning this? What is this for? And the, too often the answer comes, well, because it's on the test. And at that point, you have um, raw learning away from its real value, which is to interact with the world. I want to be learning things that I know are going to help me live my life. And when it's not clear that that's happening, I lose interest. And this, of course, is true for us, for our, for our students in school. Um, that's why they ask the question, you know, what is this for? Why are we learning this? Um, I, I say that any learning that cannot be applied is a waste of time. But I go on to say that no learning, there is nothing that cannot be applied. For us as teachers, it's our job to find that application. And I think that's an effort that teachers perhaps sometimes don't make, and certainly that the curriculum doesn't make. I don't want to place all this on the laps of the teachers. Um, and so the students don't know why they're learning. The teachers don't know why they're teaching. And if, if we were able to answer that question, you, we're, we're learning this thing today because it will help you do that. It will help you solve that problem. It will help you improve your life in this concrete way. The more that we can say that about what we're teaching, the more... Uh, the more that curiosity will be retained. I think. And, and I guess that's, that starts with the planning or the thinking about the next unit, about if you can't answer why are we learning this in a way that has some quality and some richness to it, then maybe it shouldn't even be taught. 
And at the end of the unit, if we can't answer why we've taught it, because you know, we can make mistakes and so forth, then if that's where the learning is for the teacher and the system, why teach it if it's not worth learning? Yeah. And as I say, you know, that's, that's the statement that I make. I, I feel that way. I feel very strongly that way. But I also think that um, nothing should fall into that category. If you, if you can't find the application, then look harder um, because it's there somewhere. There's nothing, that, there's nothing on the curriculum that is worthless. It's just presented in a way that makes it seem worthless. If you look hard enough, if you think, if you look for the, for the, for the examples, they will be there. Uh, who uses this in their professional life? What social benefits does this have? What can we, how can we use this is the question that needs to be answered. If you can't answer it, I don't think it means there is no answer. I just think it means you haven't found it yet. Um, and so then either keep looking or postpone it until the answer becomes clear. Maybe teach something else first that has more apparent immediate value. Um, but I, I do think everything has a value. We just have to find it before we teach it. And this brings up, I had a conversation uh, yesterday with, with Kyle Wagner, who, who uh, um, you know, he's on LinkedIn quite a bit. And really, uh, he, he calls himself a learning experience co-designer, and he takes PBI as a vehicle for deeper learning, which is, which is a, a very powerful concept. And in thinking about PBL, project-based learning, you know, having things that we can do around the community, building, doing, acting, and using everything that we learn in order to, to have a, a tangible result seems to me like one of the most obvious ways to make the learning relevant rather than staying in the four walls. What are the difficulties do you think other than fear of taking, you know, and, and taking risks for, for more PBL, you know, why is it not in, in more schools? Um, I think that most people don't know what it is. The, the teachers who aren't using it uh, often don't know what it is. Um, it is not easy to do. It's not easy to do if you don't know what it is. Um, it's also not easy to do if you've never done it before, if you haven't had any good guidance on it. Um, and I also think that it's often presented as something very big when it can be, but it doesn't have to be. I think there are, you know, there are very sort of small ways of doing effective project-based learning. For me, the simplest way of describing project-based learning, and I'm not a specialist in it. And, and as I say, some people take it far more seriously than I do. Um, for me, the simplest way of defining project-based learning is um, learning that has a tangible outcome, a concrete outcome, um, not just a, a, a score or a grade, but at the end of learning, you have something or you've done something, you've impacted the world in some way. Uh, that for me is all project-based learning is. It can be very big, it can be very small, but it has to be something that has a concrete, tangible outcome. And um, I find that when you define it that way, it's a little bit more digestible for teachers in my experience. Um, so I think that it often sounds like this big daunting thing that either teachers haven't heard of or they've been scared of. And so then trying to implement something huge can be off-putting without perhaps realizing that you can implement the concept in a much smaller way and still be as effective. Smaller doesn't mean less effective, I think. Um, I also think that a lot of these things get carried to extremes and it's possible that some versions of uh, project-based learning actually are not desirable. Um, there, there are some 
proponents of project-based learning that, to my mind, um, take a lot of the structure out of learning that I want to maintain. I don't want a complete free-for-all. I want students to have autonomy, but I want there to be some structure to the learning. I want there to be some um, way of monitoring and observing the learning. And uh, sometimes that's not there. Um, some proponents of project-based learning completely eschew the value of fact-based learning, which I do not. I think some facts, some knowledge are important to learn, but uh, they certainly shouldn't be the entire curriculum. And my focus then is on how we learn them rather than through rote-based uh, blackboard learning. Uh, we can learn them in, in, in more practical ways, which trend towards project-based learning. We can learn them through application, through activity, um, but there, there needs to be some explicit focus on them, which some proponents of project-based learning can, I think, move too far away from, uh, where everything becomes implicit, everything becomes uh, unconscious, and that is not desirable. Again, the research shows that, you know, when learning is designed to be fully implicit, um, that's, that's not ideal. So there needs to be some balance, there needs to be some, some in, uh, explicit learning, and uh, I think that the combination of those problems are why it's not so widely used. It's poorly understood. It is seen as daunting, scary, and some versions of it are simply not desirable. And if your first encounter with project-based learning is something that you think is not valuable, then you won't do it uh, without perhaps realizing there are more effective ways of, of implementing it. And it brings us back also to this idea of curriculum because the it's a balance between having, yes, fact-based learning, yes, intentional goals, at the same time, student autonomy. There's a, there's a balance there. And, and one of the biggest problems I have with a set curriculum is that you're writing something for kids you haven't even met yet. So how can you possibly open yourself up to student agency if, if, if it's already set in stone? At the same time, you go, oh, I'm going to get to know my kids and do what's interesting for them. You miss out so much. What's, how, we do, how do we do that balance? How, how do we work within that shell? Yeah, um, I think that, again, once we remove standardization, it opens up a lot of flexibility. It opens up a lot of possibility in the, um, in the learning. And you might then find yourself in a situation where different students are learning different things, progressing towards different goals. And I think that that's, Fine. I think that there's, that's desirable. I think that there's still, we, we should still retain a core of things that we want everybody to learn. And no, I don't have that list off the top of my head. Um, you know, I haven't designed that curriculum, but I, I, I do believe it can be designed. Um, you know, I think that there are things in the current curriculum that we would not want to throw out with the bathwater. Um, so, so that's important to, to keep in mind. Um, but I do think that some diversity and some uh, autonomy of objectives would be valuable as well. And then, as you say, that then raises the question, well, is the teacher ready and competent to teach the things that maybe he or she is not a specialist in? Um, when we have a curriculum, teachers 
familiarize themselves with the curriculum year after year. If they're teaching the same curriculum for several years, they become more familiar with it. Um, they might well be teaching things in their first year or two that they're not fully comfortable with, but you kind of shrug and get through it and you've got the textbook to help you and so on. And then year after year, you become more familiar. Um, although I think you might also become a bit more complacent and, and you lose some of the, the motivation as well, which has its own uh, drawbacks. Um, so I think that it's worth pointing out that even in the current model, a lot of teachers are not really 100% competent in what they're teaching. And I think we've all seen that. And we've all seen teachers scrabbling before they enter the classroom to check their understanding of the thing that they're about to teach in five minutes, even though it's on a curriculum. So I don't think curriculum is actually the, the magical solution to that. Um, removing the curriculum does open up more possibility for that problem. Um, but then I think that we could also remove the focus or the exclusive focus on the teacher as the only source of learning. Um, so teacher as facilitator is then the model that comes to mind. Again, I don't take that to quite the extreme that I think some people do. I still want the teacher to be a source of learning. I still want the teacher to be uh, a source of instruction and guidance, um, but not the only source. And so we can allow the students to learn from other sources and then the teacher will be engaged in the learning as well. And then we move from a cooperative model of learning to a collaborative model of learning, where the students and the teachers are learning together towards a shared goal where we both want to learn about this thing. Um, those resources also don't just have to be books and the internet, it can be other people. So one thing I would like to see more of, and you mentioned the community involvement in um, learning objectives, Right, objectives for the community, learning for the community. I'd also like to see uh, more learning or more teaching by the community. So if there's a, you know, a, a subject that the students are learning about that I'm not a specialist in, well, maybe I could bring in a practitioner, not, a, not, not just a, another teacher who's more specialized than me, but, but a practitioner perhaps, somebody who works in the field or uses that in their daily life, uh, whether professionally or socially or, or, or what, uh, and they can come in and share their practical experiences with the students and students can learn from that perspective. And then the teacher will be there as well to help with the delivery of that. You know, practitioners aren't always the best teachers. Um, and so a collaboration between the teacher and the practitioner might be of some value uh, where one person is providing knowledge and experience and a view of the world that the teacher doesn't have, but the teacher is providing the, the delivery that perhaps makes it more palatable and understandable for the students. Um, so removing focus from the teacher as the exclusive source would be, I think, one uh, one part of, of that solution. Or the internet. And, and it's funny you say this because um, uh, I'm working on some projects with some great sevens and eights and they need to do research, but I didn't want them to go on the internet. Not that it's not a valuable skill, but sometimes they get lost. And what I specifically highly recommended, I didn't force them, but highly recommended that they use people in the community. But really what I wanted to target was the skill of writing an email, going to the appointment, recording the audio, getting notes from the audio, writing a thank you email, the, the, the human side of this, as well as figuring out, well, hold on a second, there's people who know so much, let me tap the community rather than going on all these other sites and then figuring out what the value of that source is for, you know, for, for whatever it might be. 
And that's a skill that's not done enough, that, that human connection. How often do kids send emails in 11th and 12th grade saying, hi, I need this, you know, and, 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 you know, and that's not going to serve them. Right. And um, the writing side of that is, is, I think, important. Something else that I've been engaging with quite a bit lately, um, and my background is in language teaching. That's, that's now, now I work with teachers from all subjects, um, but my own teaching background is in language. And so I obviously spent a lot of time teaching writing as a skill. Um, and one thing that I have never particularly been comfortable doing, and I sort of stopped doing it as soon as I was in a position to do so, um, is the sort of the five paragraph essay, the, the standard essay model that everybody learns and nobody uses. Um, it's, it's, it's the most misguided uh, item on the curriculum, I think, um, because everybody spends, say, 12 years in school doing exclusively that, or maybe, you know, not so, not so, not from the start, perhaps, but their high school years at least, you know, doing exclusively that, every unit, every subject. And then they graduate from school and never do it again. And if you do it, because that's all you know how to do, it's not valued. It's overlooked as, as not being very good writing. Um, it only exists within the confines of the school. Far more valuable is learning to write an email, as you've suggested, and other types of, you know, learning to write a blog. No one writes a blog in the format of a five paragraph essay. No one writes a journal article or research in that format either. So these are the real things that students should be learning and, and, and emails is, is one of those examples. Um, I'd also go back to the, the internet uh, as a comparison. Um, I agree with you on, on the value of, of including human interaction. Um, and I like to, when, I, when I'm conscious, cognizant, and when I have the opportunity, uh, to ask somebody a question before I look it up online. Um, it's very easy to just kind of Google something, and, and, and I still do that, I don't know, a hundred times a day perhaps. But I, I like to occasionally remind myself, do you know somebody who can answer that question? Could you ask somebody? Uh, because you get, obviously, the human interaction in itself perhaps is valuable, but you also get slightly different type of answer when you're getting an answer from a person you get you know perspectives and experience wrapped into the answer that perhaps you don't get uh from from a google uh search um but obviously the internet is the most kind of ready resource that we have and so the the approach that a lot of schools take where they just kind of pretend the internet doesn't exist and you know no phones no no laptops no devices are allowed in the classroom um where we've sort of created an environment where our classrooms exist in the 1970s um and uh the students are getting no real practical access to the internet where they can learn how to use it reliably and effectively and that i think is valuable as well so if we do allow or encourage even our students to do their research online which is what we all do if we're honest um, then school is the opportunity for us to also guide our students in how to use the internet uh in a in a in an effective way um knowing how to recognize val valid and valuable sources compared to the more sketchy sources that there are online. These are things that a remarkable number of adults, uh, skills that a remarkable number of adults don't have. Uh, and, and we see this very apparently on, um, on social media with some of the things that people share and you'll, you know, you'll see somebody share a post very uh, enthusiastically 
and then you click on the link and think, well, this doesn't say what they said it said, or it's coming from a source that I can't trust, or this is not a reliable statistic, or all of these things that we see, um, because people aren't engaging those skills. And so we should, if we're going to encourage our students to use the internet, which we should, I think, um, then we should also be teaching them how to do that in a reliable and responsible way. And I, and I, and I really feel that, that tension between um, the agency, the project-based learning, what needs to be taught, the skills. It's really overwhelming for a lot of teachers, which explains why it's so easy to go to the textbook because you know, I, I can control that. I understand it. It's outlined these teacher textbooks. Even ask, or or, or indicate what questions you should ask. Um, I can yeah. see that. I, I can see why that would happen. Why do you think beyond that? Because I mean, that's clearly a monolithic reason. But maybe from a more leadership or administrative point of view, why do you see such resistance to having some of these changes that make it more student centric? Yeah. Um... I mean, first of all, just uh, in support of the teacher as well, a little bit there, just to add to what you were saying, um, you know, the textbook isn't only the easy option, although it is, um, you know, it, it's there, it's ready-made, it's presumably made by experts, so it should be a reliable resource. So if as a teacher, you're not fully confident about the, the subject that you're supposed to be teaching, you know, the, the, the unit, the topic that you're supposed to be teaching on a given day, the textbook should be reliable. I think we all know that that's not 100% true, um, but it, it's supposed to be. Um, so the, the, the textbook is the easy way out, um, the ostensibly the reliable way out. Um, also, it's worth remembering that a lot of the things that we've just been talking about, that, that you and I have, have just said we value, um, is sadly a distraction from the curriculum. Any time that you spend doing those things is time not spent teaching the curriculum and time not spent preparing the students for the tests that they're going to have to take. So if we really want to see teachers wholesale take on these uh, focuses, then we will need a, a, a curriculum overhaul because for, for many teachers, they will need the guidance of a curriculum and a textbook and so on that currently doesn't exist because the curriculum and the textbooks don't care about these things. Um, and they will need the time. You know, if, if I've got to spend X amount of my time teaching the curriculum, which really amounts to 100% of my time, if I want to spend any time doing anything else, it means I either need to be creative in the way that I deliver. And that's the, the holy grail, of course, is creative delivery of textbook content, curriculum content, delivered in a way that you're also de de developing these other things. But that requires uh, a large amount of, of training and, um, and experience to do that effectively. So if you don't have that kind of competency as a teacher, then the only other thing you have is to find magical time. <laughs> I'm spending 100% of my time on the curriculum and I also want to do these other things, which means finding extra time somehow or cutting down on curriculum delivery somehow, neither of those are, um, are desirable, of course. So the teacher resorting to the textbook is also just a sort of um, a recognition of the constraint, the time constraint that, that teachers face. And that's, um, that's a shame because as we said, as I said at the beginning, that's one of those examples where I see the, the, the standard or the traditional or the mainstream school model as it is actually 
moving in a direction away from what's best for the students, pulling away from or, or um, undermining what we would want our students to be learning. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that I, that I hope to see us overcome as teachers and as a, a curriculum. At the administrative level, um, I think it is in large measure a problem of this is the way we've always done it. That I think is one of the, the major problems to overcome is just perpetuating what everybody else has been doing. And, uh, you know, when I was a student, I learned this way and um, just kind of keeping that rolling is a large part of the problem. And in any field, whether it's education or any other profession or any other area of life, really, that is often the big, of, the big hurdle to overcome is trying to do something new, something different in the face of uh, this kind of rolling boulder of the way we always used to do it. Uh, so I think that's the, 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 the biggest thing to overcome. But even then, even beyond that, there is the risk um, that an institution faces if they want to do things differently. Um, it could raise questions if it's a if it's a private school or a paid school where i live in indonesia a large portion of the population goes to private schools um and as a school then you're bound by marketing on on some level and so if you are doing anything that's seen as radical of course there's going to be a market for the radical but it's a niche market and you're going to lose a lot of potential students uh, if you're doing something too radical. So it's scary. You, you could run yourself out of business by trying to do something different. Um, that's largely why I don't like the, the paid model. But even if you're in a, a, a government school system, um, the problem is similar. It's, but rather than, than dollars, what you're losing is ranking. So, uh, you know, if you're doing things differently, you might be doing them very well, but they're not being measured. And the things that are being measured, if you're not doing those things, then you start falling down ranking tables and um, any way that we measure, you start to look like you're not doing a very good job. Uh, the real reason is that you don't care about those things and you don't think anybody should care about those things, but sadly, those are the things that people care about. And so you then end up in that situation at the school level that we've already said about for the teachers where you need to do the things that you think are valuable and also somehow maintain the, the ranking and, and, and be doing the things that other people care about, which is starts to either create too much tension or it's overwhelming. It's, it's too much to, to be doing in one. We only have so much time. Uh, so I think that those are the problems at the system, at the system level or the administrative level. And I guess it comes back down to this very um, uh, concrete notion. I mean, it's like you said, it's like we're afraid that we're going to, you know, that parents would leave. And, and that comes like, oh, the parents don't want this. The parents don't want this. And I keep remembering what, you know, what Steve Jobs used to say or said once, I don't know, but he said, don't tell, don't ask people what they want, tell them what they want. Because in the world of innovation, they don't know, but you have to tell them. And, and I feel that um, if, if, schools competing against one another and add this program or add that program and their me too's really there's no stickability there other kids could leave couple couple bad years kids leave other come in it's 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 exchangeable but going after that niche market 
make sure that nobody's going to leave. There's a reason why people are queuing up to going to go to the green school. Marketing, yes, but there's a reason for that. There's a reason why people, you know, the, some of the most innovative schools are popping up in China, a, a market where it is, um, you know, supposed to be this Confucian conservative attitude. People understand that, that, that things are changing and in five years, it's going to be too late. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the Steve Jobs point there reminds me as well of, uh, I, I think it was Ford who said um, about the, the, the T model Ford, obviously the first, the first commercial car. Uh, he said, if I had asked the customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Um, this is, this is the reality of, again, it's any field, any, any profession or any area of life really is we're always looking at ways to improve Yes, everybody wants progress, but in a very restricted way of slightly tweaking and slightly improving the same thing that we've always been doing, the idea of a radical change uh, can be scary. The idea of dropping that tradition and doing something new, something completely different, which is perhaps much, much better, um, people will reject that in favor of doing something that's only slightly better, but has the familiarity and the comfort uh, in with it that, that they desire. Uh, so definitely that, that's, that's the big barrier, I think. Um, and yeah, I also think you're right that if you take that leap, it's scary to take that leap. And if you take that leap, you might lose something. You might lose, you know, students, you might lose favor with the, the, the system or the government or your district or whatever. You might lose that. Um, and it might take, time to regain that but what you will find is um is collaborators i think you know you're, you're, the students that you then get and their parents then are more than just students and more than just um you know names on a register they're collaborators they are sh they're there because they share your vision and i think that's really valuable to know that you're not just kind of you know tutoring at these students but you're in you're in it together you're working towards a shared goal i think that's really valuable and one of the things that i say or, or i should say i instill with the schools that i work with is more communication to the parents um but as you say not just asking them what they want and then complying but educating them on what perhaps they should want not in a dictative kind of authority raising awareness of what the parents perhaps should be valuing and um that's a case again of going against the grain you know okay look i know that you send your kids to the grades up focuses on getting higher grades and that's everybody's main focus we do things a little bit differently i tend you know i also tend to think that that grades grades follow anyway grades follow learning so as long as you're doing good learning um i think the grades are, are going to be there but there might be a, a a period of adjustment um but ultimately you know we're not focused on grades that's not the thing that that motivates us as our main priority and that can be scary you might not be familiar with that but here's why you know here's what we do aim for here's what we will achieve and here's how you will see progress being made it might not be recorded on the score charts in quite the same way but you will see real progress and real achievement and real value in these ways and uh, we we believe that that's valuable and hopefully you do too and getting the parents kind of in on that that conversation 
um, I think is is important because otherwise you you risk a mass exodus uh, not because they not even because people disagree with you but they don't understand enough to agree or disagree with you tell us about the rebel teacher network how did this idea come who's on board what's the mission what's the vision yeah how it came was was just sort of accidental really it started as um a, a social media hashtag really um and it was just something that i started uh kind of affixing to the posts i was making on social media where i was talking about a lot of these ideas um some of them at the system level some of them at the at the practical level of okay here are some ideas some things that you can do as a teacher um to generally the goal is you know to provide a better education to provide better learning for the students while also uh, keeping your job essentially, you know, keeping the school happy, keeping the admin happy. How can you do both of those at the same time? That's the challenge, I think. And so um, I was writing posts, making posts uh, along those lines, and I started to use the the hashtag uh, Rebel Teacher to just kind of identify that series of posts, and it, you know, it grew, gained some traction and it got some some feedback and some responses and. Uh, started to trigger some conversations and so I started to refer to that small community that was developing as the Rebel Teacher Network and it just grew from there really and uh, um, I had also at the same time started my podcast uh, which is the Talking Teaching podcast and so I began to tie those two things together and then gradually um, started to reach out to, to other creator teachers who I thought would be perhaps um, good for that, good for the network. And so now the, what the Rebel Teacher Network has become is uh, sort of a, a platform um, for, at the moment, mostly podcasters. Uh, so we've got uh, six, six or seven podcasts now on the network, um, which has happened, I think, quite quickly. Uh, it's sort of five or six months ago, it was just me. Um, and the goal is for it to expand uh, obviously, hopefully to get more podcasts and more creators, either um, existing podcasts that want to join or new people, you know, teachers who want to start creating their own, uh, their own content, um, obviously a welcome on the network as well, um, but also to expand outside of podcasts. So we're looking at uh, a newsletter very soon. Uh, which will hopefully be a collaborative effort from from various creators in the network and some courses that we're that we're working towards uh, offering and also perhaps down the line i'd like to also be perhaps publishing uh, books and uh, you know uh, other other content that teachers want to create you know teachers for teachers um, but but it all has this tone of change this tone of trying to do things different differently approach things differently um that's the that's the one common factor that we all share so this is uh, the part of the podcast where i open it up to anything else that you'd like to add any thoughts what you've been working on specifically you things that you've been thinking about and so forth i suppose something that is new for me and and i think this is worth perhaps commenting on this just because it might resonate with a lot of other other uh teachers as well um, is I'm new to the whole online landscape really when it comes to teaching um, I've always been a classroom teacher um, I've never been particularly engaged in social media um, and so 
moving a lot of what I do online was, was a very new thing for me, but obviously the rebel teacher network and the podcast uh, wouldn't exist had it not been for that transition. So it's been a very valuable move for me. Um, and the other thing that I've realized is just how valuable and how effective the online teaching and learning can be for a long time. I, um, I rejected the idea and I refused to take my courses online. Um, I was very adamant that you know, classroom learning would always be better, um, or at least in the current state. I've always been open to the idea that as technology advances, um, you know, online learning could, be, could become more valuable. I've always been open to that future idea, um, but I refused the notion that we were already there. Um, and having been forced online in the last few months, as many people uh, many others have as well. Um, I have been very pleasantly surprised by how effective the lessons can be. And, you know, I'm very happy with the lessons that I'm delivering. My students uh, and, and, and the teachers that I work with, my, my uh, student teachers have been very happy with the, the standards of the course and the learning that they're getting. And as far as I can tell, it's not really lost much. There are some differences, some things to overcome. Um, but uh, this is really what triggered a lot of the, the rebel posts when I started uh, was the realization that a lot of the problems, or a lot of the complaints that I was hearing about online and, and some of the reasons that I had for rejecting it, um, I, I then realized were not really problems with online. A lot of the, the complaints we're hearing from students and from parents and from teachers about how online learning is not effective um, a lot of these are problems that were there before. So when there are complaints that, you know, online learning is boring. Well, okay, but how exciting were your lessons before? Because many of the lessons that I've spent time in as a, as a student and as a mentor, a teacher mentor and a, a trainer and an observer, uh, many of the classroom lessons that I've, that I've spent time in were very boring. And if you have boring lessons in the classroom and you take them online, they're not magically going to be any more exciting. Um, a lot of the things that, that were happening before were problematic and taking them online has perhaps placed some focus on them um, in a way that teachers were getting away with it before. Uh, and again, I don't, when I talk about teachers, um, a lot of this is teachers doing what all the other teachers are doing, right? For all of this is, I think that the big thing is here is all of this has been going on for so long that we've all been complicit in it in one way or another. Um, and it's time to realize that change needs to be made. There are things that teachers, all of us have been doing that are not in the student's best interest. Uh, certainly a lot of that comes from the curriculum and from the system. Um, but some of it just comes from this idea of perpetuating practices that, that have always been around and not thinking to, to do, to try something different. Um, and a lot of the complaints that I've seen about online learning and teaching and learning have actually been that, uh, a, a realization of what was broken before because it's placed under a microscope when we take it online. These aren't new problems or problems with the online. These are opportunities for us to realize this has never worked. And if we're now beginning to realize that it doesn't work, well, that's good because we can change it and we can change it for the online landscape. 
but we can also change it for the classroom. And so one of the things that I'd like to see and, and one of the things that um, I'd like to perhaps, you know, call out to the, to the teachers that are, that are with us now is if you've made changes to your teaching to be more effective online, uh, if you've tried to approach things differently to, to engage the students more online, well done, that's great. Um, if you later go back to the classroom, what I would say is don't automatically fall back into the old habits of the classroom. Um, you know, ask yourself, what have I been doing online to improve my teaching practice that I can take back to the classroom with me? Are there some changes I can make to my classroom teaching practice to upgrade uh, and to increase the value of what I'm teaching in the classroom? Because my biggest fear really at the end of all of this is we miss that opportunity. And teachers who have been perhaps doing a great job unexpectedly perhaps online fall back into old habits when they go back to the classroom. And I think that that would be a real shame. Excellent. Carl, I'd really like to thank you for being on our show. Uh, it's, it's great talking to you, hearing your thoughts. And uh, uh, how can people get a hold of you or, or find you if you want to be found? I think the best way is probably LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. And uh, they can find me by my name there or by the hashtag Rebel Teacher Network, which I also use on, uh, on Twitter. And uh, we also have the YouTube channel where most of the podcasts are. Um, so that is uh, YouTube um, Rebel Teacher Media. Uh, so we've, you can find the channel there and my podcast and all of the other Rebel Teacher Network podcasts are there. As I say, I think at the time of this conversation is six or seven and that's, uh, that's continuing to grow. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and, uh, please feel free to reach out. If you, if you, if you do find me on LinkedIn, whether you're following already, or if you listen to this and, and come find me, um, get in touch, please, you know, reach out in the comments to my posts, message me, uh, because I'm now at a point where I really want to see the network grow and, you know, I really want to engage with other teachers and get teachers actively involved in whatever it might become. Thank you for listening to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud. I really want to thank Carl for joining me in this conversation. Such rich thoughts, such clarity, uh, and really a breadth of insights, depth of insights, and, and, a, and I really took a lot away from this conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Coming up next is Tim Logan in, uh, in a few days, uh, who is an expert in uh, bringing agile to the education world. Really nice guy. Also, uh, he's got his own podcast that he'll tell us about, but specifically in terms of how we can think about education using agile. And then I'm very excited to say that uh, Will Richardson, uh, who is, I must admit, one of my big inspirations. I'm, I'm quite thrilled to have him on the show and that will hopefully come uh, in the next few weeks. And uh, we've got a couple other guests in the meantime. So uh, please stick around um, to the new episodes and uh, we look forward to getting your feedback. In the meantime, uh, see you soon.